You'll join me in Ephesians chapter 1. We continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and this morning we will be in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. The title of our sermon is Riches of Grace, and our key words for our worshipers and training are redemption, forgiveness, and mystery. Now, the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca called himself a homo non tolabilis, tolarabilis. Sam helped me with that. It's translated from the Latin to mean a man not to be tolerated. Humankind, Seneca reasoned, needs a hand to lift them up. And to him, that hand did not exist. Similarly, Chuck Colson tells a story of watching Albert Speer in a Good Morning America interview. And Speer was Adolf Hitler's confidant, whose technological genius kept all of the Nazi factories running throughout World War II. And of the 24 war criminals who were tried at Nuremberg, Speer was the only one that admitted he was guilty. And he was sentenced to serve 20 years in prison. And Speer had written a book that was, he was being interviewed about. And the interviewer asked him about one of his writings and, and said, You have said the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? And Chuck Colson wrote that he would never forget the look on Speer's face as he answered the question. Speer said, I served a sentence of 20 years And I could say, I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't get rid of it. This new book is part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. And so the interviewer presses the question even further and asks, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? And Spears shook his head vigorously and said, I don't think that that's even possible. Now compare those two individuals to a guy named David Berkowitz, who you may know by the name of the Son of Sam, or the 44 caliber killer. From July of 1976 to July of 1977, Berkowitz killed six victims and wounded several others, all while eluding a massive police manhunt, and he left brazen letters that mock the police and promised further crimes wherever he was. All of this was very publicized in the press, and the uh, ten or so of you that were alive during that time probably remember that. Um, And people in New York City were very fearful of Berkowitz, and he had international recognition. And when Berkowitz was apprehended and tried, he admitted to all of his crimes. He was given six life sentences for murder in the second degree and attempted murder in the second degree. He is one of the most well-known serial killers in all of Western history. But Berkowitz tells this story in an interview. He says, I was 10 years into my prison sentence and I was constantly in trouble, a disciplinary problem. I had a really bad attitude, living with a lot of anger and so forth. And one night I was walking in the prison yard and another inmate came up to me and introduced himself and said, listen, I know you're David Berkowitz and I want to tell you something. 
I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves you and he's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And I said, listen, I don't want to hear that because you know, I've done too many evil things and there's no forgiveness for me. Maybe there's a God out there someplace, but I don't think he has any interest in me at all. And he said, no, you're wrong, David. He can forgive you. And then he said he would like to be my friend. And we started to talk a little here and there. I would see him in the yard because he lived in a different cell block. And we would meet in the yard. We would walk around together. He started to share Christ with me. And within a couple of months, I was led to the Lord. And the interview responds, Now, there are those skeptics saying that all this is just a jailhouse confession. And Berkowitz responds, I know what Jesus Christ has done in my life. And I can understand that people in prison and out of prison can be skeptical, but I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. He has done so much for me. I believe in him, and no matter what people say, I'm going to continue to serve him. I serve the Lord. I minister to men in here, doing Bible studies with the guys. I go to chapel. I'm a chaplain's clerk. I preach the gospel, even overseas, through correspondence and testimony tracts and so forth. So I know I'm living for Jesus. And no matter what man may say, I belong to him. I've been purchased by Jesus Christ with his blood. So compare these men. Chuck Colson wrote about watching that interview with Albert Speer, and he said for 35 years, Speer had accepted complete responsibility for his crime. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to avoid his sin. He desperately sought expiation, all to no avail. I just wanted to write to him and tell him about Jesus and his death on the cross and God's forgiveness, but there wasn't time. The ABC interview was his last public statement because he died shortly after. You see, the tragedy with both Seneca and Spear is that there was and there is a hand to lift them up, a complete forgiveness of sins, though they didn't even know it. But then we look at a guy like David Berkowitz, who who the world says is the lowest of low when it comes to humanity, and yet he says with all confidence, no matter what I have done, no matter what people think of me, I know who Jesus is, I know what Jesus has done, and while I deserve every bit of punishment I get, I am his, and I am forgiven. And as we continue our journey through the letter to the Ephesians, we come this morning to this great promise of God's redemption and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Seneca was right. Humankind needs a hand to lift them up. Spear was wrong. Forgiveness for every sin is forgivable, even his. Berkowitz is evidence of that. Even the worst crimes against mankind can be washed away. But the question is why and how? That's where Paul goes this morning as we look again at this opening statement in the greatest of letters. We will be looking at verses 7 through 10. You can find it on page 976 in the Blue ESV Bibles. Now remember... In the original Greek, the apostle writes verses 3 through 14 as a single lengthy sentence with no breaks. So it's important for us to see uh, the part in light of the whole of what he's communicating here. 
So we're going to read beginning in verse 3, but we'll focus on verses 7 through 10. Beginning Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The first implication of what Paul identifies for us this morning is that Christians are redeemed and forgiven because of the riches of God's grace. In verses 3 through 6, Paul's main focus, remember, is the work of God the Father. And he narrows in specifically on the blessings of election in the past. What did God do before the foundations of the earth? That was the question that Paul answered for us and that we've looked at over the past few weeks. Now the focus shifts to the work of God, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the only begotten Son of God. And and the focus is primarily on our present redemption and the future effects of that redemption. And all along the way, we see that Paul's words are rather celebratory. Remember, we saw last week, and we'll see twice more, the way, uh, the, the way that he is saying all of this and all these great things that he's outlining as he comes to the end of each person of the Trinity, he says it's to the praise of his glorious grace. He continues to celebrate what God has done through each person. And in the four verses leading up to our text this morning, Paul has praised God for our election, for our standing before God as holy and blameless, and for our adoption as sons and daughters of God, having been taken out of the family of Satan and made to be children of God. And and we looked at how frequently Paul continues to point us all to being in Christ and everything being through Christ. And all of this is based on our union with Christ as our representative. None of what uh, Paul has outlined is obtained apart from Jesus Christ. He has emphatically made that statement and that, um, that reality come true for us as we've walked through the text thus far. And so now Paul writes in verse 7, In him, and he's speaking of the, be- the beloved, who we see is being referenced in verse 6. That's Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So there's really three main things here. Redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespass, and the riches of his grace. So what is redemption? The word is used in various contexts, but in this context, Paul's utilizing it to, in the idea that those 
people who are specifically seeing redemption applied are enslaved. And in this enslavement, they are set free by way of a payment that is made. But what makes it all the more interesting is that we are twice Christ's in a sense. We were created by him, and then we are purchased by him. You can think of a a painter, and he is a very famous painter, and he creates a masterpiece, and he finishes it, and in the middle of the night, someone breaks into his studio and steals that painting. But for the artist, it was his greatest work ever. He never intended on selling it. He wants it back desperately. He sees that it's going to be for sale in an art auction, so he goes to the auction, and he pays the highest price to receive it back. Nobody was going to pay a higher price than him because it was his creation and he cherished it and he wanted it all to himself so he was going to purchase it no matter the cost. And that's not a perfect illustration but you, I hope you see the point. We are twice Christ. He, he made us, he created us and he has purchased us at the highest price imaginable. And the payment that was paid, and having received us in return, that is redemption. We were redeemed. It's the payment of the price, or a a ransom payment, if you will. And the price to be paid was in blood, and the object purchased was our souls. So last week, the picture that we saw was that of orphans, Uh, People being in an orphanage and and the Lord adopting children out of the orphanage to become his forever children. But this week the picture is of a vast number of people in a slave market of sin. And in in that slave market there is one man who is dying to set all of us free. I hope you see that. All of humanity is in the slave market of sin. And so we're completely powerless to effect any deliverance of our own. We were owned by our sin. We were enslaved to our sin. Our master was our sin, and you could do nothing other than live in submission to our sin. And so what must be done? What is the price that must be paid? For the wages of sin is death. Who will die to pay your ransom? The only acceptable sacrifice is a spotless, blameless, law-keeping human sacrifice. The only acceptable payment is Jesus Christ. And so Christ has purchased his church with an infinite price. The writer of Hebrews explains in chapter 9, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Likewise, Mark 10.45 says, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. And do you know, this is such a profound marvelous, groundbreaking truth that Jesus will be praised for it and the saints of God will be in awe because of it for all of eternity. In Revelation 5, 
We see the song that is sung before the throne of Jesus by all of the saints and all of the the heavenly created creatures uh, surrounding the throne. And, And John writes that everyone is singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. Brothers and sisters, we will sing with the angels of heaven that song forever and ever because of our thankfulness and our awe and our admiration and the joy that fills our hearts because Christ has redeemed us. It is only but a tiny fraction of that which will fill our glorified hearts when we behold Christ in his glory in the heavenly throne room. When we, as we sing now, as we worship now, as we gather now, we only sense but a small bit of what we will have as we are before the Lord Jesus in our glorified state. And now in conjunction with redemption, we have to think about forgiveness. Redemption is, is completely, it, redemption is incomplete without pardon. It's meaningless to be set free, but to still be held liable. It's of no value if the judge says your penalty was paid by someone else, but you will still pay all of the consequences as well. It's unjust. It's double jeopardy. And so forgiveness goes hand in hand with redemption. If we are redeemed, we are forgiven. And without the substitutionary death of Christ, there would be no forgiveness ever. And maybe you're more like Seneca or Albert Speer than you are like David Berkowitz. Do you think your sins are too great to be forgiven? Do you think your past is too dark to be wiped away? Do you think that your life is too defiled to be restored? If you think those things and you don't understand the power of what God has done in Jesus Christ, you aren't understanding the power of the gospel to set us completely, totally, absolutely, 100% free. John Calvin said, God puts our sins out of his remembrance. He drowns them in the depths of the sea and moreover receives the payment that was offered him in the person of his only son. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven now and forevermore. And that's it. The penalty is paid. If you are in Christ, you will stand before the judge on judgment day. Your record will be covered in the blood of Christ. So as he looks to the record, not a single one of your sins can be seen because it's covered in his blood. And he will look to you and he will declare before all of the universe, you are not guilty. And I hope you feel the weight of that as pure, refined, undefilable gold. 
you know the Apostle Paul, when he became a Christian, he was, he was so profoundly aware of the reality that apart from Christ, he had a very sinful life. He was a lot like David Berkowitz. But he also knew that in Christ, living on this earth, he was still a sinner. He called himself the chief of sinners. But he also had a profound knowledge of the forgiveness that he had in Jesus Christ. In this life, you continue to live in the flesh, and so you continue to sin. Martin Luther popularized the phrase, simul justus et peccator. And that means at the same time, a sinner and justified. You will sin and you will fail, sometimes miserably. But in Christ, you are completely forgiven because you've been redeemed by his blood and for his glory. I hope you're feeling thankfulness for this this morning. And friend, if you're not in Christ, I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. You may think your life and your sin is pretty awful, and you know what? It really is. It really is. I agree with you completely. But the absolute beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is that all of your sins of the past, all of your sins of the present, and all of your sin of the future is paid for on the cross. You see, God is not a tyrant. God is not looking for ways to judge and condemn and hurt you. No, God is full of mercy. He's full of kindness. He's full of grace. He's full of love. And he tells us throughout all of his word, look to Christ that you might live. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. There's no other way to the Father but through him. But friend, I must ask, knowing what Christ has done to secure your salvation, why would you want to get to the Father any other way? Will you trust in him with all of your life? Repent and believe the gospel. The Lord Jesus will not turn you away. And of course, all of us have to ask the question, why? How and why is this even possible? Paul tells us in the same verse, grace. And notice how Paul says it. It was according to the riches of his grace. All of this is simply what grace is and how grace acts. Do you know what grace is? If someone asked me in one word, what is the gospel? My response would be this, grace. What sets Christianity apart from every worldview, every religion, every philosophy, every idea that has ever existed in the world? It's this, it's grace. It is God's unmerited, undeserved favor, despite me being who I am and doing what I have done, and God's providing salvation through Christ's sacrificial death. So you see, Paul is telling us that it took the wealth of God's grace to redeem and forgive mankind. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, 23. The cost of sin was the supreme sacrifice of God's Son. Sin is a violation of God's holiness and righteousness, and the violator must be punished. 
So God sacrifices his son, whereby he provides payment for sins committed and sets sinners free from punishment. And the effect is the cancellation of sin's obligation in our lives. And so we have a permanent release from guilt and punishment and enslavement to sin. And this was all accomplished according to the standard of God's wealth and God's grace. So, in what way is God's grace given to the believer? Our second point this morning is that Christians are given wisdom and insight into the mystery of God's will. Look again at verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now notice, Paul is emphasizing the way in which God's grace in its riches, in its wealth, is being lavished upon us or abounding toward us. And he says it is done in a very specific way, in all wisdom and insight. Now, I must admit, this is a very difficult set of verses to keep straight. There's a lot of hymns and he's and his's and us's and understanding where everything falls because he doesn't put a lot of um, names in there for us to draw back to. But I believe it's right here to say that Paul is saying that God lavishes upon us all wisdom and insight to mean that wisdom and insight are being applied to us, not that God is doing these things in all wisdom and all insight himself. It just wouldn't make sense that Paul would speak about God in that way because God himself is wisdom and God himself is omnipotent and, and has all insight. And so Paul is saying that wisdom and insight have come to us as a result of God's grace being lavished upon us. And so beginning in verse 8, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us, and as a result we are given all wisdom and insight. Maybe that helps clarify. Okay, so we have the grammar sorted out, but more importantly, what does it mean? The riches of God's grace that have been lavished on us. It doesn't stop at election. It doesn't stop at predestination. It doesn't stop at adoption or redemption or forgiveness. No, it keeps going. And God's grace so abounds that we also receive wisdom and insight And wisdom and insight are absolutely necessary if we are to have a knowledge of God's will, of his eternal purposes in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so with this wisdom and insight, Paul writes, the mystery of God's will is made known to us. So let me try and put all the pieces together for us. God has purposed in himself before the foundation of the world this great plan of redemption. It is something that originated entirely in the mind and heart of God. He purposed it himself. But you see, it's not just that he planned it, but also that he has revealed it. It is a mystery that has been made known. 
And still more wonderful yet, God has also done something which makes it possible for us to know this and to apprehend this and to receive this. This is the, this is the way in which the riches of God's grace have been lavished upon us. It was done in all wisdom. It was done in all insight so that we might have this understanding into the mystery of God's will and his gracious purpose of redemption for all of mankind. And I hope you understand why it's important to to get this. There There are many who will reject the Christian faith by saying things like they can't understand it or that it's unreasonable. It doesn't fit their their methods of figuring things out or their categories of understanding. It doesn't stand up to whatever standard they want to put it through that they've devised in order to reason through the faith. But the problem is their starting point. Where does Paul start? Where does all of Scripture start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of human history begins not with man, but with God. And so wisdom and insight, that doesn't come from a college degree or a textbook. It comes from God. And how does a man come to a knowledge of this great salvation in Jesus Christ? and to an understanding of the mighty and eternal purposes of God. It is God himself who must reveal all wisdom and insight. And unless and until he does, the things of God are foolishness to the man who's not in Christ. And this is why Paul says that he revealed to us that which was once a mystery to us. The meaning is not that it was something incomprehensible, but that it's unknowable and undiscoverable by the human mind alone. On your own, you would never come to arrive at a knowledge of what God has done in the history of redemption. However, once it's revealed to us in wisdom and insight, we are made able to understand it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 that God's wisdom is a hidden wisdom. The princes of this world, Paul notes, did not know God's wisdom because they were seeking to understand it with their unaided minds. But God has revealed wisdom to us by his spirit. And the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So we have received, not the spirit of this world, but the spirit that is of God that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God. We may know these things. They are made known to us by the operation of the Holy Spirit. And so to the Christian, the mystery of redemption is an open secret. Because God, in his grace and his kindness, has been pleased to unfold it and to reveal it to us. So, if you're a Christian, and you say you can't understand the truth, or you can't grasp the things of God, or you cannot understand the gospel, either one of two things is going on. Either you're actually not a Christian, or you're a lazy Christian. 
Every Christian has been given wisdom and insight. And as a result, we have the ability to understand God's word. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it doesn't take work. It doesn't mean it doesn't take time. But it does mean that saying this is too difficult is an acceptable excuse. We can't say that. We need to study and dig and keep learning. And I believe that as we are learning more about God for all eternity, our thankfulness and our worship will increase. And I believe we will be learning more about God for all eternity. We will never exhaust our study of who God is and what God has done. And so we don't get to just sit back and shrug our shoulders and say, it's too vast, it's too much. We'll never know, so I'm not even going to try. Don't do that. The Lord has given you a gift to know more of him in a way that the natural man never can and never will. Philosophers have been trying to understand something about God since the very beginning of time, but God has revealed himself directly to you in Christ. Don't waste that gift. Use it. Grow in him. And you know, this too should inform our our missions and our evangelism because it means that we can go even to a tribal people, for example, who, who have no reading, no writing, no formal education, and yet we can preach the gospel to them with the same confidence that we preach it in any other context because God can remove the scales from their eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit just as he does everywhere else with anyone else. Remember the first Christians? They were simple people. Fishermen, slaves, military men. They weren't the learned schoolmen and philosophers of the day. And I was a military man, so I can say they're simple. I'm allowed to do that. (laughs) On the contrary... It's no surprise that those who do not even give recognition to God or the fact that God exists, much less serve him, do not have the least idea of life and what the universe and what eternity are all about. For example, the French philosopher André Mourois, he said, the universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I am convinced that no one has the least idea. And surely you've heard such things before. These are the supposed learned men of our age. But Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You see, when God takes away sin in redemption, he humbles us. And he shows us how much we don't really know. And he doesn't leave us in a spiritual, moral, and mental vacuum where we must then work things out on our own. He lavishes, that's the word of you, he lavishes wisdom and insight on us according to the riches of his grace, just as he lavishes forgiveness on us according to those riches as well. 
we, brothers and sisters, have access to all wisdom and all insight as we look to Christ. Well, very quickly, why has God done so much for us? Why has he blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, made us holy and blameless, predestined us to adoption as his children, redeemed us through his blood, lavishly given us forgiveness and wisdom and insight according to his infinite riches of his grace? Why has he done that? Christians are part of God's plan for the fullness of time. Look again in verse, end of verse 9. He did all of this according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. History is going somewhere. All will make sense when everything is brought under the full, complete, unhindered headship of Christ. What do all things in heaven and earth encompass? Regenerated souls and all the rest of the created universe. The work has begun with God's children. Believers are presently united in the body of Christ over which he is head. This brings believing Jews and believing Gentiles together. A major miracle in Paul's eyes. We're going to see that in chapter 2. There's a solidarity between the church triumphant, which is in heaven, and the church militant, which is on the earth. And that is a, a reality. However, whether we are here on earth or whether we are in heaven, we all share in what God has given us and we will all be brought together in him. John Calvin says, Man has been lost, but angels were not out of danger. By uniting together both into his body, Christ has conjoined them to God the Father that he might establish a true harmony in heaven and on earth. This is the new order of things. And along with this, The cosmos which Christ created and sustains will be ordered under Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1.16 that all things were created by him and for him or toward him. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All things came out of him, all things will return to him. And so all of creation is moving toward its consummation in him as described in Romans 8. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so all redeemed souls, all of the universe, All of the faithful angelic hosts, literally everything on heaven and on earth, everything material, everything spiritual, everything within, without, above, and below will be united to Christ. The galaxies and the endless reaches of space, everything on earth from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and the Mariana Trench, 
All of the plants and animals, from the blue well to the microscopic viruses, all weather and movements of the earth, all hurricanes and tornadoes and monsoons and earthquakes and avalanches and floods and snow and rain and sleet and hail. All of the chemical processes that heal and destroy cancer, AIDS, malaria, flu, all of the antibiotics and thousands of healing medicines, countries, governments, armies, political processes, ISIS, suicide bombers, beheadings, nuclear threats, media, news, entertainment, sports, leisure, education, universities, scholarship and science and research, business, finance, industry, manufacturing, transportation, all of the internet, all of the information systems, and every last single hair on your head, all of it will come to its final consummation and God's purposes for every bit of it will be fulfilled and revealed and he will receive all of the glory and all of his people will sing loudly and forevermore to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you see now where Paul is going back in verse 3? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The God who is in control of all of this, who is uniting all of this together for his purposes, he looked at you and said, you will be mine. And I will love you, and I will care for you, and I will provide for you now and forevermore. Paul has looked at all that God has done, and he looks at all that God is doing, and now he's looking at what God is moving us toward in the future when everything is finally and completely brought under the headship of Christ. And he's praising God, he's praising the Lord Jesus Christ. And the best part for us is that all of this blessing doesn't belong to the angels. It doesn't belong to the most learned of the world. It doesn't belong to just a select few who keep it together. It belongs to us. To you and to me who are the redeemed in Christ. I hope you are heavenly minded and have your heart and your mind and your eyes toward Jesus Christ. Everything is coming together in him and you, dear brother and sister, are receiving everything from the Lord that he has lavished on us in abundance. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace as he blesses us in Christ from the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the power of your word to bring conviction and change, to create within us new desires and affections, new longings and the power of your word to heal our brokenness and to set us free from the bondage of sin, the bondage of guilt, the bondage of all that rests on us because sin is always at our door seeking to devour us. 
we pray, God, that we hear your word this morning. And as we hear of the power and the might and the grace and the love that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, that we would rejoice because we will rejoice forevermore and will all be to the power and to the majesty and to the praise of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. And so we pray now, God, that you would be at work in our hearts to apply your word to us that we might see and behold and delight in the glorious truth of the gospel. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.